Amen. You can have a seat. And kids, before you go to their class, I actually got something for you. So this is for the kids. So Graham, bring up the image uh, that's up on the, on the computer. All right. So who knows who that is? That is not Donald Duck. It is very close. That is the mascot for the Oregon Ducks. And doesn't he look so cute and cuddly? That's one of our kids' favorite mascots. He's so cute. He doesn't look cute. Jake's not impressed by the, the Oregon Ducks. So sorry if there are any Oregon fans. But uh, that, in 2012, so he looks so cute and cuddly, but sometimes looks can be deceiving. Uh, because in 2012, actually probably the strongest person on the Oregon Duck football field was not any of the players it was the duck. See, starting in 2012, they got a new coach named Chip Kelly, and he was doing, introducing some unique things to be one of the fastest offenses in all of college football, and they were scoring points at a record rate. So like in their opening game, they scored uh, 52 points by halftime. And uh, now you would think that's wonderful for everyone except the duck, because part of their celebration is every time they score, the duck does that many push-ups. So you score seven, he does seven. You score 14, he does 14. Now you try doing like 14 push-ups with a 40-pound suit on, and they're scoring 60, 70, even 80 points a game. Three weeks later when they played UCLA, they scored 62 points by the third quarter. And they ended up with 72 points, so the poor duck had to do 72 push-ups in the row at the end of the game after he had already done 560. So he averaged right around 600 push-ups per game. So even though the duck looks so soft and cuddly, he actually is probably the strongest person in the entire field and stadium. And that actually isn't a bad image of what God wants us to be as Christians. See, we've been walking through Ephesians, and one of the things his call to us in Ephesians is to be kind and compassionate, to be tenderhearted, to forgive one another, to love one another. In one sense, he wants you to kind of be like the duck where um, you're soft and cuddly and people warm up to you. But then don't be fooled because underneath the surface, he wants you to be strong. He wants you to have convictions of steel and these moral muscles that are really strong so you can do the right thing even when it's hard. Or you can do the right thing even when it hurts. So that's actually what adults, that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several uh, weeks. And so that's a little image for kids. Now, kids, we have uh, kids programming for K through 2 this morning. So if you're in kindergarten through second grade, uh, you can stand up and you can go with your teachers. Third, fourth, and fifth, you'll, you'll hang out and be here with us. Um, but hopefully there's some sheets in the back for you. And we're going to be talking about warfare. So hopefully you can tune in. But kindergarten first, second grade... You guys head back to your with your teachers. And if you're staying here with us, we're in the Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we're slowly walking through the book of Ephesians. We started that last June. And uh, we're coming to the very last part in chapter 6. And 
And here in chapter 6, we're getting to the very end and kind of some context as chapters 1 through 3, Paul lifts you up into the heavenlies and tells you all about the blessings that you have in Christ and in the gospel. And then starting in chapter 4 through 6, he brings you back down to earth and says, all right, now it's time to live. Live out this gospel. We want you to walk. Walk in the truth. Walk in the light. Walk in love. Walk in wisdom. And then here we come to the final section in verse 6. So we're going to be in chapter 6, and this morning we're going to look at verse 10 through 13. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then 14 begins. We don't have a printed in bullet. 14 begins. Stand, therefore. And then he starts in the famous passage on taking on the armor of God. So stand. So this is our call. So in chapters 1 through 3, he takes you up, blessed, into the heavenly realms, 4 through 6, bringing you back down. And he's going to end here with this call to battle. He's saying, don't you realize you're in the midst of a spiritual war, and now you need to stand and it's a really interesting image because all throughout 4, 5, and 6, the image, the command has been walk, walk, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. So we're walking. The Christian life, the most common metaphor for the Christian life all throughout the Bible is a walk, a daily one step in front of the other. Keep walking. And then all of a sudden at the very end, he says, all right, you're going to have to stand. So the image is almost like you're a soldier uh, on march. And then all of a sudden you're ambushed. And now you have to stand your ground. And so we're going to look at that in the next couple of weeks. We're going to look to stand. You're in the midst of a battle, and you're called to stand. And one of the real challenges for us is just to, um, and one of the helps we need from the Spirit is to awaken just to the simple fact that we're in the midst of a spiritual war. There's a battle going all around us. I think one of the... Um, I love reading and studying about World War II, and one of the um, kind of most compelling and moving documentaries that's ever been done on World War II is HBO's miniseries did probably 15, 20 years ago called Band of Brothers, and uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks produced this, and it follows uh, Easy Company, who was a member of the 101st Airborne, and it follows them all the way from... Uh, I think it's Fort Bragg, Fort Bragg, all the way from the very beginning of training all the way till the end of the war. And probably the most, uh, one of the most emotionally jarring scenes in the whole documentary is when um, by the time the Allied forces had moved into Europe, they'd already uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy. D-Days happened. They're moving in, and you have allies. Uh, the Americans are coming from the north, the British from the south, the, the Russians uh, coming from the west are moving into the east of, of Germany, and they're surrounding, they're moving into Germany, and they begin to uncover all of the concentration camps. And one thing we forget, like looking back, we know that part of the story, but at the time, no one knew they were there. There were rumors and kind of hints, but nobody actually knew 
that that was happening. And it was the soldiers who were moving into Germany in the war that were the first ones to discover and kind of unpack these death camps. And some of the, the reporting as they stumble upon these is just harrowing. Um, one soldier talked about it was almost like you walked out of this earth and you walked into hell. And there's a scene in um, one of the last of the Band of Brothers where Easy Company comes upon the first time a concentration camp that's right on the outskirts of one of the towns. And they come into the German town, and everybody's just going through their life like day-to-day normal. And they're utterly shocked that, no, like, how could you go through your life when this is right here? It's right here on the outside of, of the town. And one of the soldiers goes into one of the bakeries and starts taking the bread, uh, taking it from the bakery, and is going to take it to the concentration camp. And there's this exchange because the, uh, we'll clean it up a little bit, but the baker starts screaming at him not to take his bread. And um, he tells him to be quiet and then calls him a Nazi. And then the baker responds, I'm no Nazi. And then he says, well, are you a human? And he says, how could you not know? You can smell the stench of the flesh. How could you not know? Are you a human? And it's this harrowing thing, like how could, I mean, these people are, um, in a, they're culturally sophisticated, they're intellectual, they're educated, and yet they chose to be blind to what was happening around them. Right around them was, was this, the, this atrocities. And how could they be blind? He says, how could you not know? And I wonder if Paul wouldn't come to us and he'd say, well, wait a second, wake up. Look, I've been walking you through what the Christian life is and painting this incredible picture, but you got to wake up. You're actually in the middle of a battlefield and there is spiritual death all around you. And if you're in tune, if you've been brought by the spirit from death to life and your senses, your spiritual senses are in tune, you should be able to smell the stench and see the sights and hear the sounds. So wake up. So one of the things he does here in chapter 6 is give us this kind of uh, stark wake-up call. He says, wake up, look around you. And as we walk through it, I want to look at it in just two different ways. The call we have, so he issues this call, and then the conflict we're in. So the call we have, the conflict we're in. So you say, look, I've been uh, calling you all throughout this as a prisoner of the Lord to walk worthy of his calling and calling you to live a life that's pleasing to him a life that's marked by uh, self-sacrificial love for your family, for those around you, a life that's marked by a husband who will rather die than have his family not flourish, a life that's marked by um, children being obedient and kind of walks you through these different images in 4, 5, and 6. And then he pauses and says, but don't think this is going to be easy. Like if you're going to live this out and if you're going to accomplish the calling of a Christian in your home, a Christian in your workplace, a Christian in your world, and if you're going to fulfill the calling of the church that I have for her, it's a warfare. You're going to have to make war. It's a battle. And so this whole section is, in essence, a call to arms. Saying, wake up, you're in the middle of a battle. Now you have to fight. And so what we're going to do from now until Easter We're going to spend the next two weeks looking primarily at this passage to unpack it and get a sense of what Paul is telling us here. And then from, um, we're going to spend eight weeks walking through some of the primary strategies that the devil has to try and destroy you, how he tries to attack you. And so we're going to use this passage almost as a launching pad to look at those things. And to frame that, we're going to use the seven, the kind of classic deadly sins 
of the way Satan, those are kind of his, some of his primary strategies that he's trying to destroy you. And what we're going to walk through all of those so we can learn, in essence, how to fight back. But all of this is under the umbrella of that you're in the midst of a spiritual war. And even before we go forward, you might be, you, that, even that language might make you uncomfortable. We think, ooh, I don't know, that's, that's, a little, that's a little much. Isn't that one of the problems with, you know, our world today that you have uh, religious zealots who talk about war and, and that's, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Now, I do find it interesting. That is, uh, so that's one reason, one um, challenge for us is we're kind of, as Westerners, we just assume that there's a natural cause for everything and a technological solution for everything. So even spiritual warfare makes us a little uneasy because you think, well, that's just superstitious. There has to be a natural cause and then some type of technological solution. Now, it's interesting for most of the rest of the world, like if you're from Africa or Latin America or Asia, you, you know that the world is filled with spiritual realities that you often can't see, understand, or control. But it's, it does make materialist or naturalist a little uncomfortable. And we'll talk about one of the why kind of that reduction of the world leaves us ill-equipped to actually deal with the world in a few minutes. But another thing I was thinking about is just a general uncomfortable, like, military language. Why even talk about battle? Then I started thinking, do you realize how much, like, battle language is infused to our life in general? Like, I was thinking about this week, because you, do you know what happens this afternoon? There's some important football game that's going on this afternoon, and what I thought so interesting is, do you know how often they use battle language when they're talking about sports? Like, we're going to go to war between this. And I'm like, well, wait a second. It, it's not war. It's a game. You're going to be playing a game. We're going to suit up. It is a battle. And we use battle language all the time for talking about sports. You listen to any political talk show, and do you know how much military language there is? Not talking about actual war. You know, you have the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on terror, depending on which channel you listen to. One channel will say that we're in the middle of a war on women, a war on the unborn, a war on equality, a war on gender. So sports is fused with war language. Politics is fused with war language. And then you think about it. I bet the company you work for is infused with war language. Just think about war and business. You know, what's our goal? We're going to conquer our market. Or uh, we, we have to capture, capture our target audience. I actually got an email uh, selling a thing that, as a pastor. Do you capture your audience with your communication? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> Stick them up, everybody. <laughs> You're captured. <laughs> Why even use that language? My, my target. You're my target audience. Do you capture them? And if you want to do that as a business, what you have to do is you have to hire a sales force. And if you have trouble hiring your sales force, you can employ head hunters who will go and uh, help you conquer your market. And if you're going to be a really effective manager, you have to learn how to pick your battles and then if you do that really well and you become financially successful, you will be making a killing. Wow. 
Is that what business is? <laughs> why, why all the military language there? And I wonder, I wonder if we use that language in sports, in politics, in just economics, if we don't deep down really know that we are actually in the midst of a war, we just don't know who the real opponent is. We don't know who the real object of the animosity really is. We don't really know which side we're on because we're confused. And one thing Paul wants to do is help, hey, wake up, realize you are in a war that's all around you, and you have to heed the call to battle, but then you have to understand the conflict you're in, who the actual enemies and opponents are. So let's pick up the call we have finally, finally. I always kind of tease whenever I read this in Paul or hear preachers say, all right, finally, for my last point, you get real nervous because you know they're going to go on who knows how much longer. Finally, we're going to now, one thing I think he's doing here is finally he's wrapping up. This is the summation. He's summarizing everything he's told them to this point, saying, here's the climax. And what I find so beautiful is that he begins chapter 1 lifting them up into the heavenlies. And so in the heavenlies, if you're in Christ, you're bathed in blessing. Praise be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. In him, we have redemption as sons. In him, we have adoption. In him, we have election. In him, we have the gift of the Spirit who's going to give us an inheritance. And he lifts you up into the heavenlies and says, you are bathed in his blessing. But then he ends and say, in the heavenlies, you also are in the middle of a battle. It's not just bathed in blessings. It's in the middle of a battle. And he gives you three callings here. There's three kind of imperatives. It's be strong, put on the armor, and then stand. Be strong, put on the armor, stand. Or a call to, to strength, a call to suit up, and then a call to stand up. So be strong, put on the armor, stand. And it's interesting that be strong is actually a passive verb in the Greek because we instantly think, all right, we need to be strong. We got to start lifting the weights and doing the thing. But it's actually passive. It's a strength you receive. So be strong. Or in one sense, you're made strong by being in the Lord. Your strength comes from being in the Lord. That's the source. And the source you tap into is the power of his might, his mighty strength. And what I find so interesting is Paul's telling you now, all right, you have to live in the Lord's strength, his power. What's interesting is you walk through Ephesians. In chapter 1, he praises the Lord for his power that it's the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand. Every knee is under him. All things are below his feet. This mighty power that he brought about his victory. So he praises God for his power. Then in chapter 3, he prays that we'll experience the power. I pray that you'll, you'll know, you'll have the power to comprehend something of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of his love for us and the strength to know and comprehend these things. So he praises him for his power. He prays that we'll experience the power, and now he's telling them to go practice the power. And you see the progression? There's a progression. You praise first, then you pray for, and then you practice. That's how you become spiritually strong. And it's real similar to the progression you need to become phys physically strong. Like, if you want to become physically strong, um, you know, you have to, in essence, have proper nutrition, then proper exercise, then proper recovery, and then you repeat that cycle. If any one of those things is not there, 
you're not going to become as strong as you could be. There's some type of break in the chain. And that very same chain is the chain to how it becomes spiritually strong. It starts with praise, praising God for who He is. It starts and then comes to prayer, asking Him to work who He is into who we are. And then you try and live it out. And so that's how these three things work. So one of the keys is you, you come to church, you live a life of worship where you know Him and you praise Him for who He is, and then you ask Him to work that reality into you, and then you go out through the world trying to live it out. And if there's a breakdown at any place, you will experience weakness. You won't be strong. And so one of the keys, if you're going to really become spiritually strong, is you got to know, all right, do I know who He is? Do I ask him to work who he is into me, and then do I try as best as I can through his power to live that out? So all of these things, like who is he? Here Paul's saying he's powerful, so pray that you'll experience the power. But there's other things, you, you know who he is. He's, he's wise, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's humble, he's gentle, he's just, he's righteous. So we learn about who he is, we praise him for that, and then we say, all right, help me Work into me your kindness, your compassion, your patience, your mercy, your justice, your wisdom. And then we try and practice it and live it out. So that's the chain of, to become spiritually strong. Praise, prayer, practice. And then the two more, suit up and stand up. We're actually going to cover suit up next week. So just look and kind of see, put on the whole armor of God. We've given you equipment so you can fight this battle. You, you have supplies. And so suit up and then stand, stand up. And then notice the second thing I want you to see is the conflict we're in. Why do we need to do all these things? And then did you notice one of the key words in this next two verses is the word against? It says, look, you have these things that are against you. Six times he uses the word against. You know, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Or hold on, even before that, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in every place. He's saying, realize all these things are against you. They're coming against you. You're standing in a whirlwind of things that are hitting you. You're being hit with this, hit with this, hit with this. And it's coming from six different directions. So he's saying, stand. You got the schemes of the devil coming. You got spiritual forces coming. You got rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces all coming against you. So we need to know and to be able to stand. So let's actually look at this a couple ways. What's against us? Let's think about the enemy forces, how the enemy fights, and then how we fight back. But look at the, the array and complexity of the enemy forces that are coming against you. It's not just flesh and blood. It's spiritual forces, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We have all of these different spiritual forces coming at us. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this can be really hard uh, for us to, to kind of get our minds around, because we really don't have the intellectual resources to think about spiritual warfare. You know, we've reduced all difficulty to either, you know, dysfunction or uh, pathological behavior, because we can't place moral judgments and say that things are just evil. They're wrong. There's something deeper underneath 
these. We think things have natural causes and technological solutions, so there must be a scientific solution to, to heal us. There must be a psychological reason or a social reason. But you start to think about when you look at real evil, you think, are all of these natural solutions enough? Like, maybe they give you some of the truth, but is that enough? Like, can you really explain things like deep systemic, uh, systemic racism with just like a lack of education? Or can you explain violence as, you know, a lack of culture? You look at the Germans. They were one of the most cultured, educated civilizations ever. Or like... Um, you know, a Marxist critique would say all of the evils that plague us are just social inequalities. And is that enough? You know, one of, uh, Tim Keller talks about this, one of the, um, in one of his books, one of the most stark uh, cultural kind of representations of this inadequacy is from the movie The Silence of the Lambs. So you think about the movie or the book The Silence of the Lambs with Jodie Foster and um, who's the, Anthony Hopkins? And uh, he's Hannibal Lecter, the serial killer. And the first time Jody Hopkins like comes to him, uh, she mumbles under her breath, "What happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel?" And he overheard her, uh, which was a big mistake. And he snarls at her. He says, "Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences." You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. And you have everyone in moral dignity pants. And nothing is ever anyone's fault. But look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And what he's actually challenging, if all you can conceptualize is there must be a natural cause that is explainable, then you actually can't understand the evil that he has perpetuated. You know, did you see, actually, there was an illustration of this in the news this week. Did you see, this week, the FBI released their report on the Las Vegas uh, mass murder of the shooter, and they released the report that's been 16, 17 months. It happened on October 1st, 2017. Stephen Paddock um, went on the killing rampage, and uh, this is from the, the report. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit shared the key findings Tuesday from the report to explore the details of his uh, social development, his interpersonal relationships, and his clinical history as they related to his behavior before uh, the attack, and they found no single motivating factor. As they walked through, they spent you know, 15, 16 months and said, we actually can't find a social reason for this. He wasn't isolated you know, and, and picked on as a child. We can't find... Um, psychological. It didn't seem like he had actual mental health. We can't find these natural causes, so we have no explanation for it. And it's because we've taken out these categories, so we can't look and say it's, it's evil. And one of the things Paul says is, look, your battle's not just with flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is part of that, and that's what chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all about. There's a dynamic of it, but there is spiritual forces who will take your flesh and blood, and they will use them to their own ends, and that real evil is multidimensional, and if you don't have categories for all of the dimensions, you won't be able to deal with it. So it's worth just pausing and thinking, all right, do we actually realize the scale of the conflict we're in? the multidimensional nature of the forces that 
are against us. Now let's think about how the enemy fights. You notice that word for um, we do not wrestle. And I'm sorry, I can't say wrestle right. I will say the whole time I'm self-conscious. I'm from the South. We don't say wrestle. We say wrestle. So when you hear wrestle, just hit, you know, Cynthia grew up and was raised in Winter Park, and one of the things I've been trying to do is introduce her to the world I was from, and just different cultures, and made her watch a couple minutes of the 30 for 30 on Ric Flair, and ex- yeah, and she's watching this like this, this can't be a thing, like that's a person, and this is a thing, and like you loved it as a child, how it can't be a thing. Yes, it was a thing, and I loved it, and so wrestle. So we wrestle with, it's not just flesh and blood that we're wrestling with. And then notice, but wrestling, like re, this kind of wrestling is not like that kind of wrestling where it was choreographed and all those things. This is actually hand-to-hand combat. And what you see here is that the way the enemy works is he works, he's very close. He's close to you. And he wants to get his hands around your neck. It's hand-to-hand combat. You, you wrestle with him. And the only way, um, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges is that often you don't see him coming until it's too late, until he's got you. And one of the reasons we need one another, one of the reasons you need people who love you in your life, who love you enough to call you out on your own sin, is because we actually can't see the way he's wrestled us to the ground and the chokehold he's got us in. We can't see the elements of our own character that are going to be most destructive to us. And we need people who are close to us who will love us and telling us, you know, the thing that's probably going to destroy you, you don't know it's there. And you need other people to help you because we wrestle. And we're actually going to spend um, eight to nine weeks talking about these different strategies, the way he tries to grip your heart and, and, and wrestle you down. And so we're going to look at a couple different things, some things you'll hear over and over. One of his primary strategies is he hides and he hijacks. You have to see how he hides and then see how he hijacks. You know, one of my fa- favorite illustrations of this is, you know, Satan has no proper creative energy where he can create new things, all he can do is take God's good gifts and destroy them. And so Doug Wilson says he's like the 16-year-old kid who can't afford his own car, but he surely can take dad's car and wreck it. And so he hijacks. And so this is God's good world, but it's been hijacked by sin. And so he takes, so the danger is every, he'll take all the good things in your life, your desire to live well, to love well, to work well, and then he'll try and hijack those so they destroy you. And some of his other strategies are isolation, deception, temptation, accusation. Those are four big ones. He'll, you can see it like how he, how he tempted Eve in the very beginning, the strategies. He isolated her. He deceived her by telling her something that wasn't true. Then he tempted her with something that he knew she would be pleasing to the eyes. And then once she had taken, the accusation comes. So those are the strategies. So over the next five or next 10, 12 weeks, we'll be talking about how do you fight? How do you actually fight back? But really, the, one of the primary ways before you can fight back, you have to know the strategies. You have to be able to see what's being done to you so you can know the strategies. And then you have to learn to recognize the self-talk. You know, I learned this week, and this was mind-blowing to me. And you, you probably learned this in your first grade music class, but I never knew. 
that you can, you can go over a piano and you can sing a note, and if you can actually hold that note, which is a big if, you sing that note and that string will vibrate. Did all of you know that? That string will vibrate. That's amazing. And that is a brilliant image of how Satan plays you. Because he knows which notes in your heart that he can start singing to that will really start vibrating, and that's how he'll play you. So you have to learn, right, what are his strategies? Because his primary strategies is he's a deceiver and a slanderer. He'll tell you things that are false. And one of the things, two things, let's think about two there, temptation and accusation. Two of his primary strategies are temptation and accusation. And often temptation is to try and make you think He's singing a song to play to your vanity so you think you're better than you actually are. And so temptation is primarily him hiding God's holiness from you and trying to exalt yourself in your own eyes. And let's be honest, we don't need a whole lot of help trying to exalt ourselves in our own eyes. And so what he's doing, his temptation is to play you to think more highly of yourself. And so he starts whispering things to you like nobody understands. They do not understand how hard you work. They don't understand how hard you try, how much you sacrifice. Oh, look at that, look at that big buffoon over there on the couch. When was the last time he encouraged you? When was the time, last time he spoke sweetly to you? And then, you know, uh, Jim Collins has a book. You know, he's the good to great business guy. He also has a, a book on how the mighty fall. And he's got this haunting phrase that so many of the mighty fall is because of majestic self-pity. They say, oh, nobody knows what I've suffered, what I've given. I deserve this. I deserve that. He said, that's temptation. Satan is, he's playing you. He's trying to whisper these things to, so you can be exalted in your own, own heart. And the, the cure, the way you fight back with temptation is you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. You have to look to the cross. You have to look and look at the cross and realize this is what it costs God's son to save me. He, he doesn't wink and smile at these sins, these things he's trying to tempt me to do. God hates, and I have to look to the cross to see what it cost him. But that's not the only way he'll, he'll try and get you. Accusation is another. And if temptation is trying to get you to think more highly of yourself than you should, accusation is trying to get you to think more lowly of yourself than you should. So temptation, he tries to get you to do things you shouldn't. Accusation, he really tries to paralyze you from doing the things you should. So he paralyzes you with accusations, that you're a failure. You're terrible at this. How could anyone love you, like you, support you? And what here he's hiding God's holiness, here he's hiding God's goodness and his love for you. I think no one could ever love me like that. And of course, the solution here is the exact same solution for here. You have to look to the cross. You look to the cross and say, yes, that's what my sin cost, but he was willing to do that. For his love for us, he poured out himself. So he was willing to do that. And we look at the cross. The cross is what uh, breaks temptation and accusation. And then we look to the resurrection because that's what empowers us to fight it. Because we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we look, how did he deal with temptation? We have a captain who, even though he was weak after 40 days in the wilderness of fasting, when the tempter came to tempt him and whisper these things in his ear, he used the word and swatted him away. And we're in him. And then the accusation, we can uh, look and say, our penalty has been paid. Jesus paid it all. The debt for this sin that you're bringing and putting in my face has already been covered. And I, my sin... 
my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in whole, or not in part, but in whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So it is well with my soul, because Jesus paid it all. I'm getting another song. And the same power, what he says, is that power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is now at work in you. So you connect to that. You live that. You have that power. His strength is what is available to you. So we don't live, even though we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, in Christ, we're on the victory, victorious side. The battle has been won. It's only a cleanup operation now. We're actually doing what the allied soldiers were doing there is going through and experiencing the liberation, the setting of the captives free, and the announcement that they are no longer bound or enchained. So if you're a Christian and you've, um, you feel the, the difficulty of staying spiritually alive, spiritually vital, you, you, you feel the battle with your own persistent sins and you feel the battle with your own anxieties and your doubts and your fears and desperations or depressions or the flaws of your own character. And you've lived long enough to know that these flaws aren't because of some external circumstance, that the problem primarily is here. You understand the roots of your problem. And so that's what Paul wants to do first. Wake up. There's a lot against you. But then he wants to turn you say, all right, do you realize the resources you have to fight? You have the power of the gospel. You have this armor that he's going to give you that we're going to look at next week. You have all of the resources to be victorious. You are actually fighting a defeated foe. So take heart. See, there is therefore right now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So anyone who experiences his accusation, the reality is right now in him, there's no condemnation. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things so that we can be more than conquerors? And when we live in the light of that, we can be persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present, nor things to come, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any other created being can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.